are listening to Shining Star Community Church English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Man, we're amped. We're ready. We're going Pittsburgh. You know what's interesting? Pittsburgh is one of those places where um, I kind of had the same experience down in Atlanta when I visited my in-laws. D.C. here is such a transitional area so that if you were to wear, let's say, any other sports brand or sports team, like, people really wouldn't care because it's so diverse, right? Not everyone here are fans of nationals or skins or anything like that. Now, if you wear, let's say, a Redskins or a Nationals hat, Pittsburgh, like I did in Atlanta, I thought I was going to get hurt. There were so many people giving me the death stare, kind of like, who are you? And why have you come here? <laughs> and I remember in Pittsburgh, everyone's wearing Steelers caps or um, what are the penguins? Pittsburgh penguins. Um, pirates. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was, it was pretty intense. But um, by the way, we're excited to go back there. We have a wonderful relationship with uh, Doug Tunney. He's the, he's the head leader of the DTS there up in Pittsburgh, and we've been going there for the past four years. And, um, and man, we made such a great relationship with the refugee uh, camp there and, and all the people around there working with the inner city kids, uh, doing VBS. And, and I got to give big props to our students here. Can you guys stand up for a second here, uh, the, the ones who are going, the missions? Yeah. All right, take a seat. Be humble. Um, they, man, they work their, their tail off, and, and, they're, and they're still smiling at the end of the day. And so uh, we need you guys to pray for us, okay? And so afterwards, we actually will have commit some time to pray for them. And also, we're going to have actually Chris and Leah show their video um, of their missions, uh, what they're doing overseas as well at the end of the sermon. So uh, be on the lookout for that. Yeah, they thought I forgot, right? Uh, so so we'll, we'll have that. And then um, and afterwards, we'll, the team will go on to Pittsburgh. We'll be arriving there probably around 9.30 or so, which is okay. The full day starts tomorrow, so... Um, okay, so thank you, G, for reading the word of the Lord. Man, it's so good to be here. Did you guys hear Pastor Josh scream? Yeah. That was awesome. That is a man who loves the Lord, right? Like, he doesn't care that we're laughing at him. <laughs> like, he doesn't care because he's just undignified before God. Praise God. We, that's, that's the type of leader we want, right, and we need. Um, you might not hear that from me, though. Okay. You know, when Grace and I were home searching, we came upon a particular home that we thought was okay, except for one glaring feature. And um, that feature was, was displayed in its entryway, in the bedrooms, in the living room, in the hallways, just plastered with mirrors. Mirrors, mirrors, mirrors. From the floor to the ceiling. It was just mirrors. And so you guys can all imagine what kind of home this is, right? You're thinking about 70s, 80s, the shag carpet. Uh, you're thinking, and th sure enough, there was Art Deco. There were those weird glass blocks that people use as showers. You know what I'm talking about? I don't even know what they're called. But anyways, I thought it wouldn't be so bad. That was until I did our walkthrough. Everywhere I walked, I saw my ugly mug. Everywhere. And I saw my gym-deprived body. <laughs> Everywhere. When I walked into the bathroom, there I was. When I walked out of the bathroom to the bedroom, there I was. 
When I walked down the stairs, there I was, but worse, I was in motion. Do I really look like that? Do I really swing my arms like some Neanderthal, dragging my knuckles? Do I really have that kind of posture? I realize I walk like this sometimes. It's horrible. I need to fix it, everything. In that house, with all those mirrors, every blemish, every awkward movement, every little to big thing was revealed, and in my eyes, even more magnified. Man, I thought I was a secure dude. But seeing myself all the time, I would not want to see myself all the time. God bless my wife. Well, James, he uses a simple mirror as an illustration of the truth God has to teach us today. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say this. Have you seen yourself today? <laughs> now here's our first point the word of God is brutally honest and tells it like it is do you guys have that friend right and you're, you're, you're I mean you look horrible and your other friends will, oh no you look amazing but that, you have that one honest friend that you always have to take to the mall because they'll be honest they're like why are you even wearing that the word of God is brutally honest and tells it like it is as bad as mirrors are you know there's this invention called the video recording now, I remember when I first tried, tried out golfing, my dad, he set me up with this one pro, and, and I took one lesson, and it cost a year's salary. But there he had this interesting contraption. It was a 360-degree video rendering of my entire swing in motion. Now, I thought I'm a pretty athletic guy. It wouldn't look so bad. I'm, I'm, I'm a horrible golfer, by, by the way. But so I swung, and, and, and I'm pretty sh sure I shanked the ball, and and so he said, David, come back here. And so I looked at the computer, and he brought me back to the screen. And he showed me my entire movement, and it was horrifying. If you've ever seen Charles Barkley play golf, go on YouTube, check it out. I kind of looked like that. As much as I like to think how good I was, the video mercilessly told me otherwise. And James, who reminds us that the Word of God is kind of like that. The similarity between the mirror and the Word of God is the constant controlling illustration of this whole paragraph. And we look into the mirror to see what we look like, just as we must look into God's words to see what we are like, okay? A mirror reflects back to us how we look to ourselves. But here's the thing. There are some people who can look in a mirror and you say, I look good. Maybe you don't really look good. Or you, maybe you look bad, but you think you look good or whatever. It's all our perspective. However, when God's word reflects how we look to God, it's God's perspective. God is determining how we are, okay? And it's so different from our assessment of ourselves, because God's word tells it like it is. Now, this portion of scripture we've just read follows on another great truth that was exposed last week, just before it. The main point from last week's sermon was that we need to be quick to listen to God's word, and because God's word is the mirror that shows us the truth of who we are, we need to accept God's word as definitive truth. Turn to your neighbor and say this, we need to accept God's word as truth. Why is that? Because his words, his truth comes from his perspective, and it's the only one that counts in life. It's the only one that counts in life, right? We always try telling ourselves that we're okay. Have you ever done that? But we're not. We always try to say, especially in this day and age, with all the things, the whole sexual revolution going on and, and doing whatever you feel, all this stuff, you say, follow your feelings. What the Bible teaches is different. It says that the feelings are deceptive. The world tells us to love ourselves is the first step to loving others. How can we love ourselves when the Bible says the problem resides within ourselves? That doesn't make any sense. The Word of God tells us the truth to wake us up from the lies that we say to ourselves to deceive us into not needing God. The world says, be good. 
Be good. That's all you need. Just be good. Be fair. Why does what he's doing matter to what, what is going on in your life? Just be nice. Be good. The Bible teaches us morality is not the key issue here. That's not the problem that we're facing here in this world. There are plenty of non-Christians who are excellent people. Good people, charitable people, generous people. That's not the issue. Bible teaches morality isn't what saves us. We are spiritually dead. We need a Savior. That's what we need. People, we need this. We need the Word of God, amen? We need the Word of God. Everything is changing. Our entire landscape, entire scope, all thoughts, all what social norms, cultural norms, everything's shifting and changing. We need something stable. We need something constant. We need something absolute. We need the Word of God. Every boy, every girl needs us. Every man, every woman needs God's perspective of truth to invade our souls, our hearts, and our minds. We live in a society riddled with superficiality, relativism, and so our world and culture really doesn't care about what is true. They just care about what sells, really. And I want to say this. Christians who diligently and faithfully read the Word of God as their only source of absolute and ultimate truth, their lives tend to be much drastically different from those who do not. What are you clinging on to today? And I dare say this, even the words of your spouse should never trump the word of God. Even the words of your coworkers or someone you highly respect and admire should never, never, never trump the words of God. You know, I remember speaking to a youth student a few years back and they were being attacked by so-called friends. These friends were apparently ragging on them for whatever, not being cool or just these friends were essentially threatening to excommunicate them from their group. And so this brave girl nonchalantly said, okay, whatever. And they're like, you know what? We're, not we're so done with you right now. Don't even try to get back and we're done with you. And she said, all right. You know, we're so mad. We're going to start, we're going to gossip around you and then say all these slanderous things, whatever. We're going to talk smack about you. And they're like, she was like, I'll live. I'm not saying words don't hurt. She was kind of crying too. You, you know that, by the way, you know that stupid children's rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones? That's one of the biggest lies we could ever teach our kids. Words hurt very much, don't they? We must be careful and we will be held accountable for every word that comes out of our mouths. Turn to your neighbor and say that. Be careful what you say. And we'll be talking about that next week, by the way. Power of the tongue. Anyways, why was this girl able to stand firm and not be swayed by peer pressure to conform to the standards of today's culture that promotes glamour, sex appeal, promiscuity, hooking up, drug usage, partying as a way of life? How come she wasn't swayed in all this? Because her identity and her self-worth wasn't tied up into those things. Instead, the value she held onto was a value ascribed to her by her creator, God. It's what he says that matters. You believe that? It's what he says that matters. By the way, I don't want you guys to ever dismiss peer pressure as only a high school or middle school thing. Peer pressure is something that every single one of us faces from the moment you're born to the moment we die. No matter where you are in life, the pressure to conform to the standards of the world will always be pressing down against you. This is a true story. There's a ministry in, in some church, I'm not going to mention which one it is, where it's all about new mothers. And you're thinking, that's a wonderful thing, Pastor David. I think we should have it too. Here's the thing. Why do they have this new ministry? Is it to teach 
how to breastfeed or manage your household or, or do stuff like that? No. It actually focuses on division that occurs the moment mothers start comparing their child's development to others. Apparently, it's been ravaging their church. You'd hear someone say, oh, your child isn't sleeping through the night yet. Oh, some some parents right now are cringing. You've heard that before. Or someone will say, Oh, your, mom can, your, your infant can say mom right now. That's wonderful. My, my two-month-old can already recite the 1646 Westminster Confession of Faith. That's impressive, though. <laughs> I mean, these, uh, these comments and apparently got so bad. I mean, I'm not joking. Apparently got so bad that they had, the church had to intervene and create a ministry to support and instruct and, and often, obviously, rebuke the mothers to bring unity. I also had a parent a few years ago ask me personally before the service, no joke. She said, can you please make an announcement for my daughter who got into this college? I'm like, uh. And she said, can you make it in the middle of the church service announcement time? And she was dead serious. I wanted to laugh, but I was scared. She was caught up on the praises of man rather than the praises of God. I mean, who are you following? Well, how about this? People who don't get married between the ages of 24 and 28 are considered sad. You know what's sad? Marrying early into an unhappy and faithless marriage. That's sad. Can't hear an amen here. That's sad. But people keep saying, you got to marry early. You got to marry. Tick, tick, talk. Oh, my gosh. You say it one more time, I'll slap you. How about competition in the workforce? You want to climb the corporate ladder as quickly as you can at the expense of anything or anyone, even at the expense of the most important relationship you ever have, that's you and Jesus. So what do we do? We forego the whole discipleship, the membership class, the Bible studies, the life groups, the church worship. We do whatever we can. Why? Because it's all about me, me, me. It's about what I can get. It's about what I, can, what I want. It's me, me, me. Why do we allow these things to infiltrate our lives? Because we place greater value in the world than in the word. That's what we do. His word is all that matters. And like someone said, either the Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. Brothers and sisters, today, I think this is a reminder, we have to repent of anything that's holding us back from reading and accepting the very words that were meant to free us in Christ Jesus. What is holding you back? Are you accepting, hearing, or even giving the word of God a chance? Let's ask, let me ask that then. Are you taking the moment to read the word of God or is the first thing you hear the words of the world? Now here's our second point. God, he expects obedience. So we talked about mirrors and our flaws, right? We talked about God's word is need to know who we truly are and what we are not. Going back to the whole mirror, mirror illustration, mirrors are good for revealing our messed up hairs. It's good for, for us to notice our dark circles under our eyes, our mismatched outfit. In other words, the mirror does a good job identifying our flaws, but what the mirror does not do and cannot do is fix our flaws, right? You don't grab a mirror and start rubbing it around your body. That's just creepy and ineffective. That's not what mirrors are used for. If you want it fixed, you have to first spot where it needs to be fixed, and then you go and fix it. And I like to use this analogy a lot. When you go see a doctor and you're clearly sick, but you don't know what it is, so you need someone to diagnose you, you go to him, right, and you go with, and you sit, and the doctor says, okay, 
David, you have such and such illness. And he'll prescribe medication and the treatment, and he'll send you off. But instead of me going off to the pharmacy to pick up the meds and taking them, what do I do? I end up going straight home and doing nothing. The prescription just remains in my pocket. All I have to do is go get the meds, take it twice a day, drink some water, and feel better. In these verses, God is warning us. He's saying, you can't just hear the diagnosis and ignore the treatment. You get that? It's not like when you got all ready this morning, you looked in the mirror, you saw your nasty eye boogers, your drool-stained marks, your messed up hair, and you said, oh, perfect. Of course not. You got ready. We must not just see the issues in the mirror and walk away forgetting about it. This is one of the major points of the whole book of James. God, he says, you want healing? You want to be fixed? Obey. God expects us to obey. Turn to your neighbor and say that. And it's clear as day here in verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently, intently at his natural face in the mirror. Without action from conviction, it's as worthless as a man who says, I love you, but is unwilling to commit. It's as worthless as a student saying, I want to become a doctor or a lawyer, but without studying a single night. It just doesn't make sense. Verse 22 categorizes these people into a group called self-deception. Self-deception is dangerous and it's a sin. It's not just individuals that self-deceive themselves, but churches too. Churches do this all the time. Self-deceptive people in churches is when there's a whole lot of hoopla about believing in Jesus. You're thinking, that's good, isn't it? Shouldn't we all make, make a big thing about believing in Jesus? Well, they certainly do. Make a, they make a big hoopla of believing in Jesus, believing in holiness, believing in righteous living, believing in purity, believing in missions and evangelism, believing in the community, believing in the word of God. But that's just it. It's just believing. For goodness sakes, even the demons believe. Even the demons believe that, the, that Jesus is the Son of God. So what does that do for us? It does nothing. Believing does nothing. What will separate those who are authentically, genuinely followers of Jesus Christ and those who are not? It will depend on whether you do one or two things. You either believe or you believe and obey. You get that? Will you just be a believer or a believer and obeyer. That's what separates the two. That's the separation between the weed and the tares, between sheep and the goat, between those who are real and authentic and radically desiring God and those who just give lip service and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Look, I don't care if this EM ministry goes into the hundreds and thousands. It's not about the size of the church or congregation. It's about the size of our obedience. That's what God wants. This is what distinguishes. He will not look around the world and say, oh, that church has 10,000 people. They're doing the will of God. No, no, no. He's going to say those two people as opposed to 10,000 say they are doing the will of God. It is about the size of our obedience, brothers and sisters. And let me say, for those of you who say you trust in God no matter what, but yet for some reason you are stopped and you are obstructed because of maybe the ambiguity of God's will for me, and you're thinking, I, I don't know, I don't get what God's will for me is, and use that as an excuse to not obey. Let me say this, even if you do not understand the exact will of God, we must still obey the word of God. Okay? And here's the last point, and I'll wrap up with this. 
We think that autonomy and self-determination is what we think is right and, and what we feel is right will give us the freedom we're looking for. We think just to separate ourselves from the Lord and do whatever we please and however way we please, that's true freedom. That's called deception. And we think whether it's freedom from the world or whether it's freedom from circumstances like pain, tragedy, financial debt, the list goes on. And so when we read and hear these things like in verse 25, it says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, okay, we have that three-letter word that seems dangerous, the law of liberty, there it is again, and perseveres being no hearer, but forgets but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. Hold on. You're saying someone who obeys the law, the perfect law, and expresses the liberty of the law will be blessed, as in will be free, as in will find... find complete joy and satisfaction? How does that make any sense? It seems like a contradiction. How can the perfect law give us freedom? Law sounds confining. It doesn't sound free. Now I want you to think of it this way. This one pastor I remember long ago said this way. He said the laws of God is like a train. I'm like, oh, I like trains. And he says, we might say that the train is not free because it's confined to the track, Right? It has a schedule. It has tight controls. But here's the thing. God, he sees that differently. God, he knows that in life, no matter if you're on the track or off the track, you'll face the uncertainties and the difficulties of life. It is inevitable, is it not? You will go through hardships in life, will you not? Whether you try to live in a bubble or not, you will go through all the difficult pains, chaos, confusion, all that stuff. So that's why he says, get on this train. So that when our lives get all jammed up in a mess, you'll be on the spiritual freeway, passing by the pile-ups, escaping the frustrations of traffic. Now, you tell me who really is free then. It is much more free, much more free to be with the Lord as you go through life than trying to be apart from him and try to manage it your own way. There is much greater freedom when you walk side by side with Christ Jesus than when you try to run away from him. Freedom comes from obedience. It does. And this afternoon, brothers and sisters, it is through the grace of God in sending his son Jesus to die for you and me that we are free. We have freedom. Here's the thing. You and I were meant to be bound and shackled and mocked and humiliated and imprisoned. Why? Because that's what sin does. Have you guys ever seen any, I don't know, movie for that matter? What happens? There's always a conflict, is there not? There's always something that happens, a climax, if you will. And how is that? It's because a trouble occurs. Something crazy happens. And and where does that come from? It stems from what? Someone making a foolish decision. Everything in life, all the sins, just think about that. That's what sin does to us. It binds us. It mocks us. It shackles us. It imprisons us. That's what sin. But God, he says, I can't have it this way. I love you, and I love you, and I love you so much, I got to free you. He was so passionate for you because he wanted you. Because God so loved you. And so he did the hardest thing any parent could ever possibly do. He gave up his son. He gave up himself for our sake. So it wasn't you who was shackled or bound. No, 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 no. It was Jesus, his son, who was shackled and bound, mocked, humiliated, and imprisoned. Not for his sins. No, he was sinless, but for our sins. Jesus paid the debt we owed because of his sacrifice. We are free. We are free to obey him, and in that obedience comes the fullest joy. 
The fullest joy, joy everlasting, joy even in the midst of suffering. Can you believe that? Even in the midst of your suffering, you're able to give praises to our Lord. Because you know that this is not it. You know that there is joy everlasting. You know that whatever anyone has to say, whatever anything happens to you is limited. There is, in fact, an end to it. But there is forever with the Lord. Oh, praise be to God. The call of obedience is not a call for you to be good. The call of obedience is one of a response and one of faith, a response of what Christ has done. Because, Jesus, you have done this for me. Oh, Lord, how can I not live for you? How can I not worship you? How can I not just dedicate one and a half hour every Sunday to worship you? How can I not give every 30 minutes of every single beginning of every single day just to hear your words? Well, how can I not respond to you? How can I not live for you? And the other one is one of faith where you say, Lord, not only the words I hear from you today do I read and want to hear, but I, I pray that I would trust. I would know it's you, and I would know that your promises are real, that your promises are reality. Let's no longer be hearers of the word of God, but doers. Let's obey God. Amen? Amen. And you will have for yourself the greatest freedom just as God has promised. But it all starts with accepting, believing, and obeying the one who afforded you that freedom. You have to come and know Jesus today. And I say this every week, if you strayed, come back. You know what's amazing about the Lord's banqueting table? There's always a prodigal spot. There's always that spot saying, hey, I got that one boy or that one girl who strayed from me. But no, no one else must sit here. It's for him. It's for her. That may be you. He says, come back. I'm waiting. I got a spot for you. Maybe you think you're fine. If you do, I want to say this. You're not. A Christian who knows the depth of God's heart and knows the length of what he has done for us and knows how far we can go with God here, you'll know that you'll never and ever can be satisfied here. There's so much more to the Lord. Don't ever say, I'm fine. And if you don't know who he is, the word of God promises us this, ask and will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks find and one who knocks will be opened. When you seek the Lord out of the genuineness of your heart and you desperately are seeking truth, the word of God promises you will be found by him. He will find you. Let's take this moment to pray now.